Thanks for allowing me the opportunity to do that. Again, I appreciate that. Now, as we transition into the message, where we're at, as we've been talking about building blocks, which is kind of the, our term for the foundations of the Christian faith, just working through what do we believe and why do we believe it, and just kind of working through our statement of faith through some of the core realities of, of that. We aren't going to go through the whole thing, but we just picked out some of the really big ones. Uh, one of the beliefs that we have, and we've been saying this week in and week out, is uh, you may never have thought of yourself this way, but most of you in this room, we believe, are actually theologians. And you say, well, I never graduated from Bible school. I never really studied the Bible. What do you mean? Well, we've been saying it. If you've been here, we've, you've heard us say that theology is simply kind of what we think about God. Theology is kind of the, what the Bible teaches about God. Uh, and so theologians are simply people who think about God and then express their thoughts in some kind of systematic way. Um, so most of you in this room think about God. And most of you, I'm going to take a stab in the dark, at one place or another, have someone in your life that you talk to about God and what he's doing and, and what he, who he is in the world. So most of us are theologians. We also understand that what we believe deeply shapes our lives. Last week I was, or uh, two weeks ago actually, I came up to, um, I rushed, left church and got to our, I coached football, got to the other coaches, the game's getting ready to start. And one of the coaches goes, did you put cologne on for the game? And I said, no, I came from church and this and that. And I, he goes, wow, you smell good. <laughs> I, do you know why I put cologne on? I'm, I have a fear that I stink. I believe that I stink. So I don't want to stink. So, I put, so what we believe shapes what we do and how we live. So the same thing goes across. I know it's a silly illustration, but what we do or what we believe is oftentimes rooted uh, then into our behavior. The other thing I want to mention too, I haven't talked about this other weeks, but um, how you live also can shape what you believe. I want to read a quote to you from a book that um, I was, well, was through this process with surgery with my leg and laying on my back. This is one of the books I read. And he says this, Steve Brown is his name. He says, most bad theology is bad psychology. Most bad theology, which we're talking about, is bad psychology. And here's what, his, here's what he says. A neurotic person will probably choose to believe some neurotic things about God and religion. A mean person will find a reason to be mean in his or her theological commitments, and a Pollyanna person will probably have a Pollyanna belief system. And then he says this, We will see truth through our own emotional glasses, and that makes it very hard to separate the true from the tainted. We understand as a church that we don't know what we don't know. We have blind spots. And so much of how we live shapes what we believe, and what we believe shapes how we live. And we're just stopping to say, let's dig deep, let's pull back the layers, let's take off the glasses, and look at Scripture and say, what do we believe, and why, and what impact does it have on our lives? Now, this morning, we're moving into what we believe about people, what the Bible teaches about people. Now, I want to start out by giving you a gift. It's a gift that I've been given as a pastor, and I want to pass it on to you. It's a gift I've been given, and kind of as I tell people I'm a pastor, I get generally two responses. I don't always like to tell people I'm a pastor because of the first response I get. Oftentimes when a person says, what do you do for a living? And when pastor comes out of my mouth, it's like this, just their face goes silent, they withdraw, and it's like, okay, have a nice day. We'll talk to you later. And they just leave. Amazing to me how when I tell people I'm a pastor, it just like shuts down the conversation. I don't know why. Some of you could help me understand that. I would love, love to understand that. Um, second response that I get, I don't get this one quite as much, but I do get it from time to time, is people start to tell me all about themselves. I don't know why. It's like they hear pastor and they're like, oh, time to confess. And they just pour out their stories. 
I had this happen to me recently. I was at a, an appointment, and the receptionist at the appointment, I mean, she's talking, and we're kind of conversing, and I, she says, well, what do you do for a living? And I, because we were trying to set up, I was with my calendar, and she's like, oh, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor. She kind of looks at me. Oh, that's cool. And for the next, I don't know, 10 minutes, she's telling me all about her life and the mistakes that she made and the regrets that she has. And, the, and I'm like, I'm off today. This is Friday. It's my day off. <laughs> but it's amazing to me. People love to tell pastors their story. Now, here's the gift that I want to give because I've heard so many stories. Okay? Here's the gift. I want all of us to understand this. It's a gift knowing that we are all pretty much alike. You say, what? Every one of us in this room, we're human. I hear stories that aren't that different from the next story I hear. It's amazing to me. I hear people tell me at times, you know, over the years of being a pastor, not just here at Bethany, but over the years I hear people tell me about they just must be so unique and so different. They struggle with this. And while they're sitting there telling me, I'm like, well, I see you sit next to someone in church who struggles with that too because they've equally told me that. I can't tell you that now. But, and they want to talk about how all these other people in church have it so together and they start naming people. And I'm like, if you only knew, we're all pretty much alike. What I mean by that, what I mean by that is um, all of us in this room at some level uh, are afraid. Most of you have fears uh, and fears that get deep and dark at times. Uh, most of us experience loneliness. It's a human condition. Most of us have regrets. And right now, there might be deep regrets in some of you, but most of us have them. Most of us have periods of compassion, periods where we love well. Uh, others of us have, and most of us have, periods of anger. Where we're hateful. A lot of us are selfish. We experience periods where we're kind. All of us are tempted. Most of us are wounded at one level or another. And in other words, we're all very, very, very human. All of us. In fact, I would say that nobody in this room can speak as an outsider to the human race. Nobody. Now, why I put this up on a screen is because what I have found in the theological circles that I have been trained in and walked with is we tend to stand up on stages and open up Bibles and preach and talk about people. And the first place we start is we're sinners. People are sinners. I don't start there. Because though it's true, because I am a human and I live in a world that I do and sin is a part of this world, I am a sinner. None of us can escape that, but I don't start there. Because I don't think that's where the Bible starts. I don't think it's very helpful to start there. And I find that we've, we've emphasized this sin piece, and we've not spent enough time in the Christian communities talking about, well, what does it mean just to be human? And I find at times we begin to talk about Christians as though they're over here in this world that doesn't have problems. And when they do have problems, it shouldn't hurt in the way that it does over here. And what I've come to realize is if whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, if you get stuck with a pin, you're going to bleed. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, if you've experienced serious childhood trauma, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, there's a chance that you have an emotional price to pay as an adult. Good chance. I've come to learn whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you get sick, you get cancer, you get depressed. I meet a lot of Christians that are depressed. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you struggle to pay the bills. And that struggle can be gruesome. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you die. And I've met Christians who struggle to face death. 
So I want to stop this morning and just say, you know what? Let's just all get into one boat called humanity. Let's not talk about Christian. You know, the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, I've said this before, is Jesus, period. End of story. The only difference between me and my non-Christian friends is Jesus. And now, yes, the way I handle depression, the way I handle death, the way I handle cancer and all those things, it may look different to them because I have Jesus, but I'm still human and it's going to have its toll in my life. So I want to talk about that. Being a Christian does not make me an outsider of the human race. The other thing I would say is this. My beliefs on people, this area of theology has shaped me more than any other area, more than God more than the study of what the Bible is, more than, and some of you say, really be shocked, more than the study of who Jesus is. This area has profoundly impacted how I practically live more than any other area. So what I'd like to do is, on my phone, on my Dropbox app, some of you have Dropbox, you know, it's where I can get my files all over the place, and I keep a journal page on that app where I can just go in and constantly, because I'm always saying, what does it mean to be human? So if you allow me, and I've been journaling on this page for, and I try to keep it one page, so I never add something unless it is really profound and really makes sense, and I'll delete things at times. And so I'd like, if you will, I just I opened up that app and basically transferred it to my notes. I just want to share some of the things that I have learned and how it's profoundly impacted me. To start, let's start with where our church is. Um, we do this each week is we, and my clickers, there it goes. Uh, we start each week just kind of talking about what does our statement of faith say. We have a, a document called a statement of faith, and let's unpack that and, and kind of look at what that says and what it says. Here it is. This is the statement that you'll read. We believe that human beings were created in the image of God but rebelled against God and are therefore fallen, lost, estranged from their creator, and in need of salvation. Now, what we've done each week is we've stopped and said, we don't want to be like that video we introed the whole service, intro the message with. We don't want to be that dad that's standing up and saying, you know, what's dispensationalism? And none of us even use it. I don't even know that word exists, let alone we use it week in and week out. So, what, what, so we try and take all the big words that aren't common to our everyday language. And I look at this one and I say, there aren't a lot of those words in there. This one doesn't have a lot of big words. Uh, but it does have some concepts that get difficult. And I think one of the concepts that I just want to invite you to push in on is, is this one. If you look what it says, we believe that human beings were created in the image of God. We're going to come to that one. But rebelled against God and are therefore fallen. And you say, no, wait a minute. Did I have a choice in that? Here's what I'm going to talk about. It comes in Romans chapter 5. And if you're in our reading plan, we have a journal. Um, we're on page 54 today, by the way. And that will be throughout the week. If you'd want one, they're out in the foyer. Uh, But in our reading this week, you're going to read through Romans 5, but here's how one of the verses that it says. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So I have this picture that one man, his name is Adam, he sinned. Adam was the first man, and he chose to eat some fruit that God said, do not eat. And he says, I want to eat it. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to do what I want to do. He sins, and then what we understand is what happens then is he is a sinner. Sin is now a part of him, and when he procreates and he has children, sin is passed on through him. So if you have a father, even if you don't know your father, if you weren't, in other words, a virgin birth, which we only know of one, <laughs> if you were not a virgin birth, You are a sinner because it was passed on to you. Now, here's the upside of this teaching. Because sin came through one man, guess where life comes from? Through one man. 
Salvation from that sin comes through one man, which we're going to talk about that next week. Next week, we're going to kick around salvation. But all of us are sinners, and because all of us are sinners, death is a separation and is ugliness. It's a part of us. So we are all sinners. I want to make this statement. One of the things that's very important to me. Human nature and sin nature are not synonymous terms. At times, I hear us in a church where we kind of kick these words around like, like sin nature and human nature are one and the same thing. They're not one and the same thing. There will come a day when you were, your sin will be removed from you completely in heaven, but you will still be human. And the creation of mankind with Adam and Eve, they were human, but they were not sinful. Human nature and sin nature are not one and the same thing. So let's go back to Genesis and look at human nature. And this is where we're going to talk about created in the image of God, kind of that phrase that you saw there. Genesis, very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, you see the table contents there, Genesis 1, 27 to 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Now, as we talk about this, where I always like to start is we'll always find it hard to understand how sinful we are, how dysfunctional we are, how broken we are, until we understand what it means to truly function. Okay, I believe that. Matter of fact, Matt Chandler, some of you know him, he's a pastor in Dallas. Um, he says it this way, we can never grasp the extent of our depravity until we recognize the excellencies of our created dignity. So what I want to do this morning is just look at the excellencies, which I don't even think is a real word, it's, he uses it. Um, the excellencies of our created dignity, kind of the beauty of who we are as humans. Here it is, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Now this is in the creation account. God just finishes making this magnificent world, all the animals, the oceans, the mountains, the glorious world that it was, and then he makes man on the sixth day. And he says this, after he made man, he says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So both men and women are created in the image of God. Image is a picture, kind of resemble, look like. Uh, verse 28, so God, uh, God goes on and says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Roll over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God created man in a perfect world without sin in his image. Now, I want to unpack this one. I have, again, meditated on this for years. I want to unpack this at level. What does this really mean if we create the image of God? I want to give you some that are right from this text, and then I want to just mention some that are from other places in the Bible. The first one that I believe that it means, the very first thing is we can relate to God. You and I can have a friendship, an intimate relationship with the creator God of the universe, every single one of us. See, the, 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 why I say that is when you read through the animals and he creates the animals and he creates the fish and he creates the birds and he never says, I've created them in, their, in my image. But he says of mankind, I've wired man in my image. So what that means is I'm a picture of God. I reflect God in some way so I can think his thoughts. I can feel the way he feels. I can understand how he operates. I can understand who he is because I can have a relationship with him. I, in other words, get him. It's kind of like this. My son, I won't tell you which one, but one of them is a lot like me. I mean, if any of my kids are in my image, it is him. And that apple, here my wife's laughing because she knows, you hear? <laughs> that apple landed at the trunk of the tree. I mean, it is there. And it is unbelievable. It is un I look at him at times and I think, 
Like, is there any way that we're not alike? How did he get that? And it just baffles me. But what I find interesting, because we are cre- he is so much like me, guess what? I get him. I get him. It makes sense. When he does things that baffles his teacher or baffles his mom or baffles his sisters, I'm like, well, it makes sense to me. I get it. I get it. And so that's, again, I think when God created us in his image, first thing I think we understand then is we get God. We understand him at some level, not totally and completely, but we can relate to him because we're made of some of the same pieces. Now, the next thing I think we get, um, so we get God, have a relationship with God, but the text itself, verse 28, so it says God created him in his image. Let's go right to the text. So he makes him in his image, verse 27, and then right away in verse 28, he gives this, okay, because you're in God's image, these are some realities that kind of come in verse 28. The first one is God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Have sex, make babies. Some of you are like, some of you are way too uptight about that. <laughs> it's legit. God says, I made you to get together. I made you to advance. I made you to have children. I made you to grow. I made you to transcend is kind of the, the, maybe the spiritual way to say that. We're growth-oriented. It is normal. It is human, whether you're Christian or not, to be growth. We protect kids. In this country, we protect children. You go to the darkest of darkest cells in the darkest of darkest prison. And in those places, when an inmate shows up who hurt a child, that inmate fears for his life. In our culture, in all cultures, all over the world, we value children. It's because we're human. God made it so. God wired it in us. We have this desire to pass on, to understand there's growth orientation, there's a potential for more. So we say be fruitful and increase in number. So we want to relate to God, be fruitful and increase in number. Then the next thing, look at the rest of the verse. Fill the earth and subdue it. There's this interesting word. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. So we're created to manage this world. In other words, God said, hey, listen, listen, I'm up in heaven. I'm giving you the freedom. I'm delegating leadership to you. I've wired you in a way that you can live in this world and you can take care of it in my, in my physical absence. He's given that job to mankind. So when you think about that, all human beings creating the image of God have the capacity to rule and to reign, every single human being. Now, the way I look at this and the way I've thought of this over, this over the years is we're created to work, but more than being created to work, that's just kind of part of who we are, we're also created to be autonomous and kingdom-oriented. I've got four small kids at home, and I'm amazed at how they have their things. You ever notice that? And no one can touch my things. And I'm going to take care of my things. No one comes into my room. Matter of fact, so much so that they're starting to get, they're getting older. They're starting to want to dress the way they want to dress. I mean, this past week, some of you saw it on Facebook. I put it on Facebook. My son this past week, it's dressed for picture day. And he puts on a bow tie. I was like, what is that? Daddy's never worn a bow tie. But he's starting to have his thoughts of his own. He's starting to take care of himself and have opinions. And it's autonomous. It's healthy. It's normal. It's good. It's what it means to be human. He's wired to rule and to reign, to subdue the earth, to to manage. And all of us at some capacity have this in us. That's what it means to be human. I think the other thing that you kind of pull, that I pull from the text, is it also means that we're active, creative, and engaged. God was a creative God. When you look around the world, you know, he could have made this world 
in a drab gray with no color. He could have made the fruits and the grains and the other things that he's made to just be a solid, straight taste. But you come into my house, and my wife makes these gorgeous, wonderful dinners that I'm loving and my kids are hating because they're all their own individual people, and they have these taste buds, and everything tastes different. God was creative. God made beauty. I, I scratch my head at some of the religious groups that just walk around in black and white. I'm like, man, you're missing out. God is creative, and I think that's what it means in we're in his image, is, is we want to generate value. We want to succeed. There's the power of the imagination that resides in every human being. We love color. We're drawn to beauty. It's in all of us, and it should be celebrated. It's what it means to be created in the image of God. Now, the others that I would pull outside of Genesis 1 and 2 that aren't always listed, it wouldn't be hard to, hard to take right out of this, this text, would be things like the law is written on our heart. That's what it means to be human. You know, I find interesting, I saw a recent survey where people ask Americans about adultery, and they said, is adultery wrong? <laughs> 90, it was like 90, I'm not good, no, 90 some high percentage percent of people are just abhorred at adultery. It's like it's this horrible sin. Why do people think, why is it wrong to lie? People generally know it's not good to lie. It's not good to steal. It's because God has wired his law into us. That's what it means to be human. I think another thing is uh, we're drawn to greatness. You know, I'm so excited. I'm a Dolphins fan. Can I just say today at 1 o'clock, I'm going to be in my living room, my feet propped up, because for the very first time, they are on in our viewing area, and I'm like, yes, and they're playing the Green Bay Packers, so please pray for me, uh, pray for my family. <laughs> but I'm excited. But anyway, as I'm sitting there, one of the things that's going to happen is I'm, I'm, I'm predicting. I know some big, cool plays are going to happen. I'm going to leap out, and that's just because I'm a Dolphins fan, because we are drawn to greatness. We love to see it. Whether it's in sports, whether it's in nature, whether it's in, in music or arts, or we love greatness. And I think it's because God is great and he's wired that in us and ultimately it finds its fulfillment in him, but it's what it means to be human. God's also stamped eternity on our heart. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says this. And I believe what that means is every human being alive knows that there's more to life than the, the breath, breath they're taking in today. They're going to extend beyond the grave. We all kind of instinctively know that. I think it also says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, when it says eternities are in our heart, that also means we want to figure life out. That's what it means to be human. You want to know how your childhood makes sense to your life today and how that war over there in the Middle East and how this country here and how this atrocity there and how, the, how all this works together. It's human. It's normal. Ecclesiastes 3 just says that's what it means to be wired and how God's made us. I think the final one I would mention that I've observed and I see in scriptures is we're justice-oriented. We want the scales to be leveled. I mean, I see that with small kids. <laughs> My goodness. Every time there's a wrong, they're coming to tell mommy and daddy, we want that thing fixed. Again, I think that's true for most of us in this room. Now, here's what I've learned is I've talked over the years, as I've talked with Christian people about this, I will often sense a glazed overlook, a detachment from everything I just said. Now, maybe because I'm a bad speaker, maybe because I didn't, wasn't really intriguing, but I've, what I've learned is where most people are disconnecting is because here's the thought that's in the back of a Christian mind. Yeah, but. I hear you, Adam. But we're sinners. And I say, you know what? I don't want to dance around that. Let's look. Genesis chapter 3. 
Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals and the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did he really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the story goes on. It's verse 6, is when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The story goes on down through, and you have these consequences where you look at verse uh, 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. You want him to be a good leader. He's not going to be, and instead he's going to rule over you. Verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of which I commanded, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, verse 19, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Yeah, you're right. We are sinners. But what I find interesting, I want to challenge this. What I find interesting, God never curses Adam, and he never curses Eve. He curses the ground. He kind of says that your roles are going to be messed up, but he never curses them. You know why? Because they're created in his image. They bear his image. And I, you can't dance around as Psalm chapter 139. If you have children in our children's ministry and they're doing the quiet time readings, they read theirs. This would have been in their reading this past week. My, my oldest daughter came into the kitchen this one morning this past week and did you do your quiet time? Yeah, what did you read? And she reads, quotes this. And my heart kind of jumped out because I'm not preaching that this week. But here's what it says. David says, I praise you. This is a sinful man, David. He understands his sin probably more than anyone else in scripture. I mean, you, he's a sinful dude. But he says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. I wonder how many of us who can stand and look out at the stars and look at the mountains and look at God's creation, and we say, that is so beautiful, but yet we turn inwardly. How many of us can make that statement about us? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's because we start with this in the Christian world. We say, well, you're a sinner. You're a horrible, terrible, wretched sinner. Well, that's true. But you have dignity. You're a created being. God has stamped his image on you. And this text, if you read the verses around it, you know what it actually says? It says that you're not the product of a one-night stand. You're not the product of a mom and a dad in a passionate love getting together and having a baby. It says God stepped in into the mother's womb, it says. It's a magnificent statement. And he wove and made and formed you, every one of you. And you're beautiful. And he didn't make a mistake. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, we're sinners. And there's a grave consequence for that sin. But until we understand the dignity and the majesty and the beauty of who we are created to be, we will never feel the weight of that sin bear in on our souls to the point where we hunger and yearn for a savior. It's kind of like my minivan. All of us, I think, know, know that, that this world is not as it ought. When you lay down in bed at night and the darkness sets in and you really think, we know, most of us in this room know, yeah, there's something wrong. My minivan, there's something wrong. It's not functioning as it was designed to function. When you hear it coming down the road, you hear it coming. It's making noises now. It's putting stuff out the back that it wasn't putting out 10 years ago. It's gotten to the point where my boys are like, Dad, we're really embarrassed to get in this thing. I don't want to ride with you anymore. 
The whole family knows it's not functioning in the way it was designed to function. We're nursing this thing along till we can afford another one. We're going to try and get this thing through, but it's us. We're not functioning in the way we're designed to function, but his image is still stamped on our heart. And when we mess with it, it's unbelievably painful. This past, uh, just recently, I read through the book uh, Unbroken by Laura Hildebrand. Um, I want to show you a clip here in a minute because I could try, I want to read something out of this book. It's a story about Louis Zamperini, who was, a, who was an Olympic athlete who ended up as a prisoner of war in Japan. Spent 47 days on the open sea after his plane crashed. 47 days. Then he was captured. He was a POW for, for two and a half years and treated horribly through that time. Okay, so I want to I read this one. I want you to watch this story. Go ahead and watch this clip. It kind of sets the stage. The movie's coming out in December, and um, this clip will kind of get you a feel for this story. We spent 47 days out in the open sea, and the way he describes it in this book, I can't even I can't get my head around what he survived. No food and no water. The only water they had was the rain that came from the sky. The sharks would encircle their raft. It's just a crazy story. Their lips were so swollen from the salt that they'd actually roll up and touch up against their nostrils. The point it was difficult to breathe, and it would swell down onto their chin. They had sores all over their bodies. It was a fight to survive. I want to read. Once he became a prisoner of war, something else set in. He fought like crazy to live on those open seas. But in the book, Laura Hildebrand captures this, this reality. The crash of the Green Hornet, which is the plane that they were in that went down, had left Louis and Phil, he's the pilot of the plane, in the most desperate physical extremity without food, water, and shelter, which most of us would say it's pretty tough. But on the island, referring to the island where he was taken, where he was first taken and and severely abused, the guards sought to deprive them of something that had sustained them even as all else had been lost, dignity. The self-respect and sense of self-worth, the innermost armament of the soul, lies at the heart of humanness. To be deprived of it is to be dehumanized, to be cleaved from and cast below mankind. Men subjected to dehumanizing treatment experience profound wretchedness and loneliness and find that hope is almost impossible to retain. Without dignity, identity is erased. In its absence, men are defined not by themselves but by their captors and the circumstances in which they are forced to live. And then Louis in his journal that they uncovered, I was literally becoming a lesser human being. Dignity, Laura Hildebrand writes, dignity is as essential to human life as water, food, and oxygen. The stubborn retention of it, even in the face of extreme physical hardship, can hold a man's soul in his body long past the point at which the body should have surrendered it. The loss of it can carry a man off as surely as thirst, hunger, exposure, and asphyxiation, and with greater cruelty. It means to be human. When it's taken, we lose our will to live. And one of the things uh, a New Testament writer writes this, James 3, 9 to 10, he says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Some translations say who have been made in God's image. Out of the same mouth come praises and cursings. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. You know, what I find interesting to me is, is many of us in this room, like I say all of us, Many of us have that person that we don't think so fondly of or we have said in our, at least in our minds, if not to others, some hard things about. 
It's interesting to me how we don't see the disconnect, how we can come into a room like this and we put our hands up and praise and worship to God and just declare our love for him. Or sit in our quiet moments in my quiet time and read the scriptures and study and pray and say, God, I love you, and then walk out into my kitchen and speak harshly and cruelly to my children. We don't understand a disconnect. What I've written in my journal, it's on the sheet in my phone, is how we treat people is a reflection of how we treat God. People who are created in the image of God, every one of us in this room is created in the image of God, every single one of us. And how we treat, how I treat you is a reflection of what I think about, feel about, and think about my creator because we bear his image. And many of us don't see the disconnect. This is such a big deal to me. This means so much to me because in my life, this is an area where I've failed. And when when I look back at my life, I have more regrets in this area than anything else. All the immoral things that I've done, this one stands above all others. I remember in seventh grade when I was in a private school in a Bible class of all things, a student named Mike, I was wearing my Dan Marino jersey, which was my prized possession. I didn't have a lot of money and everything, those extra things that I had, I had to pay for myself. And I had my Dan Marino jersey, I came to school that day, and Mike was a student that wasn't so popular. Kids didn't like him. And Miles, I'm sitting in class, and he's sitting at a desk behind me, and I feel this line kind of go down my back. And so I pull my buddy aside and say, hey, what's on my back? He says, well, Mike took a marker and drew and traced the number on the jersey. Now, that's not cool. It shouldn't be done, especially in a Dan Marino jersey. (laughs) And it should be handled. But I treated Mike like less than a human being. When I got to the next class and I realized the teacher was going, I rallied all my buddies together, not proud of this at all, and I said, hey, guys, I want you to teach Mike a lesson. So they go in and I said, I'm going to stand at the door and guard. I didn't want to get my own hands dirty, but I'm going to stand here and guard the door, and I'm going to want you. And they went in, and what they did to Mike caused him to miss school for 10 days. We didn't treat him with dignity in his air and in his ways, and we didn't treat him as though he's in the creating the image of God. You know, these stories go on in my life. I wish that was the only story I had to tell. I mean, I have stories where I got to the public school, and I, with my friends, we kind of come around a lunch table. Some other kids are kind of on the outside, and, and we'd distract the kids while, while they'd turn around from their lunch, and then someone else would come up behind and open up their sandwich and spit a loogie in it and shut it back down, and we'd all walk away. I know, you're gasping. It's sick. It is horrid. And this all came to a head for me when I'm sitting in my apartment building in Lidditz with a chocolate factory right as a romantic little two-story apartment building, and we're packing our things up because I have graduated college, and I'm going off to be a student pastor now in, in central Pennsylvania. And we're kind of going through that stage where let's, what do we got to get rid of and clean out, and we're packing up, and what do we want to let our hands stuff go from? And my wife would come across my yearbooks, and she's looking through them, and we're having fun with it, and we're laughing. And, you know, because, you know, when you go through yearbooks, there's, there's just things that someone should have told me not to wear, and someone should have said, hey, this is going to come back on you one day. So we're kind of going through all that, and she starts reading the, 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 all the autographs, you know, all the little notes that people would write to you, and you go, they're just hilarious. They're so juvenile when I go back and look at them. But there was one as she's reading it, and all, here's all it said. I mean, I, I, I don't have it word for word, but it sticks in my mind that, that afternoon. Just sticks. It says, Adam, I bet you were thought you were funny every morning in homeroom when you said, and I'm not going to say what I said, about my last name, but you weren't, period. And then she reads his name. 
Now, she struggled to read his last name, but she kind of got it because, you know, those autographs are kind of tricky to see what does it really mean. And, and I said, who, who did you? And so she turns it to me, and I read his name. Dave. I knew Dave. And what comes back to my mind in that moment is Dave committed suicide one year after high school. And in that moment, has lived with me to this day, and I said, oh, my goodness. At that moment, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm clean from my past. I am walking in freedom. I am trying to, but in that moment, this still came back to me, the reality of my sin of treating another human being as though they were not created in the image of God. I don't know what role I played in his. I was one part in the whole system. It wasn't reaching out for life and hope. You know, it's interesting to me. I don't think we're all that different than I was in high school. I was just sitting in a football game yesterday. I was looking at someone. I was, I was aghast at the thought I had of that person. And if all of us are honest in this room, we have those thoughts about other people. But more than that, you know who I think we have those thoughts the most about? Ourselves. I want to end with a deep challenge. I want to challenge us deeply. Challenge you profoundly. Do you believe that you are beautiful, that you are created in the image of God, Can you look in at your life and say, you know what, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. What I find so interesting is when I sit in small groups and I ask this question, go around the room and tell the most beautiful thing about you, your greatest gift, your greatest attribute, tell the thing that that makes you stand out. What I find in those small groups, maybe some of you have had this experience, we struggle to answer the question. Because I think most of us are just beating ourselves up. We're looking at the image of God in us and saying, God, you made a mistake. I'm not beautiful. I've got problems. Do you believe to the very core of your being that you were created in the image of God? That you're fearfully and wonderfully made. I love that at the end of first service, someone walked out and he grabbed my hand. And because I asked the whole, I asked the room first service, I said, name that which you're awesome at. And he walked out in a real crude way, grabs my hand in a real raw way. He said it with some colorful language, and he said and he said what he's awesome at. And I just said, yes. He looked at me with a tear in his eye, and he said, you know what? I beat myself up all the time, and I miss how God made me. Do you believe that you're fearfully and wonderfully made? We're going to pray in a minute. I, I'm going to challenge us to repent of that. Because what I've learned in my life is why I get so hard on other people. Nine times out of ten, it's because I'm hard on myself. And it's because I'm not real fond of me. I'm going to put you down, so lift me up. That's, it's, a, it's dime store psychology 101. I mean, that's what I've learned, and, and I've seen it. So unless we can just stand in the mirror, and then that person that we see say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, I'm going to struggle to turn that towards you with the same intensity. Next thing I want to challenge us with when we go to prayer, the person sitting next to you, do you believe that that person is fearfully and wonderfully made and created in the image of God? The person in front of you, behind you, the spouse that you go home with, the kids that you raise, the kids that irritate you, 
the person that takes your money at the checkout, the person who takes your blood pressure in a doctor's office, the people in your life that you work with and go to school with, do you believe to the core of your being that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and created in the image of God? And again, I want to challenge us as we pray. Some of us need to stop and say, you know what, Adam? I don't. I don't. I'll end with this story I'm going to pray. The upside is I could, I could go on with those ugly, horrible stories, but I have some fun ones too, some good ones where I've seen the upside of this. And um, because of what I did in life and I saw the damage that it caused others and I determined, you know what? My ministry, whatever I'm involved with in my home, I am going to do everything I can to kill that nastiness. And I love our young generation today. I love the emphasis on eradicating bullying. It's something that my school, my generation, and the generations above me did not understand. They did not get, and they let things like hazing and things go on that should never have gone on. And I love our young people today and the emphasis that they get this. So when I coach football, um, one of the things I've realized is football attracts angry young men. And angry young men tend to be angry and towards other people and get nasty at times. And so all my, all my coaching days, I've always said, listen, this is the deal. The stronger will never pick on the weaker. I love the football staff I coach with now. And, and the head coach has this policy that when he sees a weaker player struggling and wants the stronger complete their lap, guess what he does? He says, stronger, go run with the weaker and encourage them. He will not tolerate any kind of nasty or critical or negative talk from the players towards another player. He won't tolerate it with the coaches to the other players. And I want to share, I got an email recently um, to that team. Can't share all the details because confidentiality stuff, but, but the email, I wept when I read it. Because in that environment of saying we, we value people, we dignify people, a young man found life. A mom wrote to tell the story of this young man. I wish so badly I could just read you the email and all that took place in this young man's life. And uh, I wept as I read it. And the doctor and the therapist ultimately looked at that young man and said, that football team, and this is what it just saved your life. What saved his life was the football team. It was a coach who said, I will not tolerate the strong preying on the weak. What I will tolerate on this team is encouragement and building up and human dignity. And it brought life to a young man to the point where there's radical change taking place in his life. So again, do you believe that you are created in the image of God fearfully? And wonderfully? Do you believe that God looks at you and says, I did not make a mistake? And do you believe that the people in your life are equally, fearfully, and wonderfully made? God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I just want to thank you right now for forgiveness and grace, the things that I've done in life that I'm ashamed of and I regret, the hurt that I've caused others. Um, Thank you for your mercy. God, I pray uh, for every person in this room. God, there are some in this room that are receiving end of others being cruel to them. And God, I I pray for grace in their lives. I pray for the courage to stand up and get help. God, I pray for all of us in this room. God, you've made every single one of us fearfully and wonderfully made. 
You were instrumental in putting together every person in their mother's womb. It wasn't just biology 101 that we came to exist. It was your hand that knit us together. You didn't make mistakes. You didn't go in error. But you've made us. God, I pray right now that that weight would push in on every single one of us in this room. God, there's some that needs to push a little harder, and God, you know who they are, and I pray right now that it would push in, and people in this room would feel the life, the freedom of knowing I am beautiful. I am loved. I can relate to the creator God of the universe who hasn't made a mistake in putting me together. Yes, God, we're sinners, and we, we know that. There isn't a one of us in this room, I don't think, that knows that we're not functioning the way we're designed to function. And God, thank you for Jesus that he stepped in to bring us life. And God, next week we'll talk about it all the more. But right now, God, just weigh on our hearts the beauty of who we are. And God, I also pray for those of us in our lives, give us the courage to treat those in our lives with dignity and respect and honor. Our children in our homes, our stepkids, our coworkers, our friends, our classmates, those we come in contact with that take our money at a grocery store or take our order at a restaurant or check us out at the doctor's office. God, I help us interact with all people through the lens of they bear the image of God. And God, weigh in on our hearts the weight of understanding and how we treat people reflects what we think about you. God, thank you for a church that's bold and courageous in this area. Thank you for a church that says we're all about the sanctity of life. Thank you for a church. And God, help us to continue to live this out well. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.